have here uh, the Ten Commandments, and God is giving these to Moses and the children of Israel. And uh, if we get far enough in the lesson today, we're going to deal with uh, why some of the reasons why God gave the law uh, and what His purpose is according to Scripture. And uh, we don't want to know what people's opinions are about it. We want to know what does the Bible say about it. Uh, that's the important part, that we understand what is God's purpose in the matter. And so we get to verse number 14, and uh, we find that the Bible tells us, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, that's just uh, a few short words that are given here. Again, uh, we mentioned last week there are oftentimes in Scripture where God will uh, state something, and He'll give you kind of the high-level um, overview of it, if you will. And then there's other places in Scripture where he will expound on it or expand upon it and clarify some things and bring things uh, a little more into focus. And uh, uh, suffice to say that the law that God gives here to the nation of Israel is that they not commit adultery. But I want us to understand there are other places in Scripture that deal with this topic that expand on it a little bit further. Uh, I want to just say this to begin with. Of course, adultery is dealing here with um, uh, immorality outside of the bonds of marriage. Uh, once the, uh, the, the marriage has been made and then uh, to go outside of that um, would be adultery. Now, there's other words of uh, immorality spoken of in Scripture. One of them is the word fornication, and that one is all-inclusive of any kind of immorality, whether it's within or outside the bonds of marriage. But adultery is a little more narrow. It deals uh, primarily with um, the uh, the idea of being unfaithful to a spouse once you are married. And uh, I just want to say this, that God, God forbids it in every case. Uh, there's never a justification for it. Uh, I, I hate, this, I hate that, that we live in a world that even among God's people, there is justification oftentimes for these things. I, I, uh, I, if, I, if I told you the name of the person that said this, many of you would know the name and recognize the name. He is uh, well known in religious circles. He certainly would not be um, someone that I would be in agreement with, uh, but, but he's well known. He, he's a well known fella that uh, has uh, been in adultery and has gotten, uh, stayed in ministry and kind of continued in some things. But he made this statement when he, when he went into adultery. He said, maybe God allowed this to happen to make me see that I needed some freedom. Can I tell you this? God never justifies this. Uh, and it's amazing to me how the day that we live, the world certainly has no problem with it. And if we're not careful, we as God's people uh, will, will tend to go that same direction. We'll tend to try to justify it. And we feel that if society is okay with it, then it's okay for us. But can I tell you this, that God's pretty clear on this matter, isn't He? And he tells us it's not supposed to happen. Now, here's, here's the problem we face. Um, for far too long, we as God's people have uh, defined our moral center uh, based on how far we are from the world. In other words, we look at the world and we say, uh, the Bible tells us we're not to love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, the Bible tells us that we're to come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. And so we look at the world and we say, okay, I'm going to not be where the world's moral standard is. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to have a moral standard that is higher and more restrictive 
And I'm going to do it because I love God. And I'm going to make sure that I always maintain a distance from the world. The problem with looking at that is that we are comparing our moral center and we're using a measuring stick that is the wrong measuring stick. We're using the world to gauge how moral we are. Can I tell you this? That was never God's intent for our morality. God's intent, God's standard, God's measuring rule is His Word. And when it comes to our moral center of things, uh, we don't go and look and say, okay, I'm still this far from the world. We come to God's Word and we say, how do I measure up according to what the Bible says? And, and I think a lot of the, the problems that are going on in so-called churches today with the moral uh, decline um, of, of things is because we are constantly looking at the world. Now, notice this, that the Bible tells us in the New Testament that the world is going to wax worse and worse. It's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, there was a, a book written a number of years ago called Spiraling, or, uh, 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 yeah, uh, Spiraling Toward Gomorrah, I think was the title of it. And inside the book, the, the author uh, was writing uh, about the idea that typically, and this is a generalization, that doesn't happen in every case, but generally speaking, our children will center their morals at our extreme. So if we have a moral center and then we say, okay, but anything within this realm um, out to this particular line, there's a line that we draw and it's different for every person. And there's a line that we cross that if we ever cross that line, that now becomes deviant behavior. It's no longer a moral behavior. Understand this, that we center our morals and then we have the extremes and it's just borderline, just on the edge of being wrong. And understand this, that typically speaking, our children will center their morals at our extreme. And now they're going to develop an extreme based on their center, and their children will do the same thing. By the time you get to the third or fourth generation, you now have a group of people whose moral extreme to the good does not even reach the moral deviance of four generations ago. It's very important for us to understand this. I read an article back in the 1970s in Time Magazine. It was on the very front page. Somebody here recently sent me a, a copy of it. They found it online, the, the magazine cover. Um, and, and the title, the, the, the actual front page of Time Magazine says, The Generation That Forgot God. This was back in the 70s. This is the generation that now has been raised uh, that has not been given the biblical foundation, the, the, the anchor to go back to, the measuring stick, the rule of law uh, from God. They've not been given this, and now that generation has raised a generation, and then that generation now has raised a generation. We're now on the fourth or fifth generation of this, and we look around our country and we say, how did we get to where we're at morally? where it is okay to kill and slaughter millions of innocent babies and even encouraged. How did we get to this place? How did we get to the place where we're where defying and denying that there even is a God? How did we get this place in a Christian country? Because we forgot that our center of our morals is to be based not on our distance from the world, 
but on God's Word. It's, it leaves very little room for error. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It doesn't change. It's an anchor. And so we need to understand this as we come to some of these topics, that there is never a time that God looks at it and says, that's okay. Uh, understand this, that uh, we, we live in a world of, of people who are... are running quickly and, and going down the path of situational ethics. Saying, well, if the situation demands it, it's okay to do wrong. Old Bob Jones Sr. years ago used to say, it's never right to do wrong in order to do right. The end does not justify the means. I would rather pay the cost of doing it God's way and be right in the process than to try to get to a right end and do it the wrong way. We've got to be so careful of this. We see adultery rampant in churches today because people learn to justify. They say, well, the whole world is doing it. It must be okay now. Not according to God, it's not. Look with me in Galatians chapter 5. Hold your place here. We're going to come back to this. But again, don't take my word for it. I don't want to give you my opinion this morning. Let's take the Bible and let's look at some things, okay? And so we want to look at this. Galatians chapter number 5. <clears throat> and uh, let's go back to verse number 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are what? contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the what? The law. Now follow me on this. Paul's saying that there are two things that play tug of war in our hearts. When we get saved, I'm thankful the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Jesus told uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And when we got saved, there was something that was made alive inside of us. The Holy Spirit of God came to indwell us, something that was missing. Boy, aren't we glad for that. I'll tell you, there's times the Holy Spirit pricks my heart, and I don't enjoy it, but I'm thankful because I need it, don't I? You know, we've, we've lost the idea of conviction anymore. We now call it being offended. <laughs> when God's Word does something and it stirs our hearts, we say, Oh, that offended me. I'll never go back to that church. Uh, I'm thankful when God does prick my heart. It's not pleasant. I'm not telling you it's pleasant, but it is needful. And there's a constant battle that takes place. And the battle is this. The psalmist said it this way. He said, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. And that is the entire struggle of the Christian life. Every day that we wake up to whether or not I have victory in my life or not today is dependent on did I have my will in the day or did I have God's will in the day? There is a constant tug of war between the two. The flesh is always trying to draw us uh, away. And, and Satan uses two things. He uses enticement and he uses pressure. He tries to entice us away from the things that he know, we know are right. And if that doesn't work, then he puts peer pressure on us. He gets other people to say, well, I think you're just too legalistic. You're not supposed to be that way. And uh, you're, you're just too, and he uses pressure and ridicule and persecution. 
He's always done that. He's done that ever since the Garden of Eden. But understand this, that there is a, a, a tug of war between the spirit and the flesh. There's, there's constant battle here, and Paul speaks of it here in Galatians. Now notice what he says here in verse number 18. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Okay, here's what he says the works of the flesh are. Number one, what is it? What is it? Boom, there we go. The very first one he mentions. The works of the flesh, adultery. Notice he also puts in here fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry witchcraft. So far, a lot of us can sit back on our laurels and say, well, I don't have any of those, Pastor. What about the next one? Ugh. Hatred. Variance. Emulations. Wrath. Strife. Seditions. Heresies. Envyings. Murders. Drunkenness. Revelings. And if you get through that entire list and you say, Pastor, I don't have any problems with any of those. First of all, I would say that you're not truthful in that. But secondly, I would say Paul makes sure that he includes the rest of some things here. He says, and such like. Folks, that's the works of the flesh. That's what we used to be. And I'll tell you this, we're never going to be perfect till we get to heaven. We're not going to. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day. In fact, I was just talking to him yesterday morning about this. I went to breakfast with a fellow and uh, was dealing with this subject. And I, uh, I, we were talking about the idea that, you know, it's interesting to me that David, who was not a perfect man by any stretch, was he? David was a weak man. I can relate a lot to David in the weaknesses that he had. And, and, and he, he, uh, he, he certainly failed God. He committed adultery. He committed murder. Uh, I mean, David was, a, was, he was an ornery fellow, wasn't he? And yet God considered him a man after his own heart. Now, did David have to pay the cost of some of his decisions? Certainly. There were scars there. There were things that David uh, bore the rest of his life because of some of his decisions. But look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They walk in to Peter, and uh, they lie. They just tell a lie. And God strikes them dead. Boom, that quick. I was talking to the fellow yesterday morning about this. I said, you know, there's a difference there. And the difference is this. David was grieved and mortified in his spirit when he failed God in sin. He would go to sackcloth and ashes and repent and beg God for forgiveness. Ananias and Sapphira did it high-handedly with no conscience. Blatantly did it. And uh, the reason we got on the topic, he said, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said they wouldn't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Well, that's true. None of us measure up to what the Bible says we're supposed to be, do we? Not one of us. My, my response to that is always, well, isn't that where you want them to be? <laughs> that's where they're going to get help. But you know what the difference is? That person is looking at hypocrites as people who claim to be Christians and then go out here and with no conscience live the way of the world. Whereas inside the church house, oftentimes, we know we're sinners that are saved by the grace of God and we're not going to be perfect. But when we sin, there's a broken and a contrite spirit. And we come back to God and we say, oh God, I've failed you. 
That's the works of the flesh that oftentimes get a hold of us, this thing of adultery. But I want you to notice not just the act of adultery is condemned, but God goes on in the book of Matthew, chapter number 5. If you have time, turn over there with me. That's all we've got is time, so we can do that. Matthew, chapter number 5. It's not just the act of adultery that God condemns, but He also condemns the heart of the issue. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 27. Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his what? In his heart. Can I make this statement, and I, I believe we can make this on the authority of God's Word. We are not innocent of adultery simply because we've lacked opportunity or the courage to act upon the desires that we've had in our heart. We are guilty of adultery when the very desire of our heart longs for that. Not just the act, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. It's interesting to me, and we'll see this next week when we come back and finish kind of the last of the ten commands that God gives here in Exodus 20, that God takes all ten of these commands that He gives and He sums them all up into one command, doesn't He? The lawyer comes to Jesus in His earthly ministry and says, what is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus tell Him? Thou shalt what? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Can I tell you this, that when that commandment is correct in our lives, it has its rightful place. These in, 20, in, in Exodus chapter 20 are not a problem for us. If God can deal with the heart, the outside will begin to take care of itself, won't it? We, we teach and we preach on standards oftentimes that we ought to uh, be different, we ought to be separated from the world. But the truth of the matter is I would rather preach on the heart of a man and having it draw close to God and let God clean up the outside of the cup. Because when He does it, now it's I live this way because I love Him, not because my pastor said I had to. I now have standards in my life, not because I'm shunned by my church if I don't, but because I'll displease my Savior. And that's the last thing I ever want to do. Oh, that we would learn to work and focus on the heart of the issue. Look with me, if you will, now, back in Exodus chapter number 20. We've got time maybe for one more here. Verse number 15. He says, Thou shalt not steal. Now, there's not a lot I'm going to spend on this particular topic. It's pretty, pretty cut and dry. Other than to say this, there are two things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, we should not steal from one another. There are some reasonings for that, especially as God's people, uh, because we believe that God gives us things that He entrusts us with to be stewards of. And when we steal from another brother or sister in Christ, we are basically taking what God has entrusted them with, and we're taking that from them. So, now, and, and we all understand that. I think we teach, we, we've learned that and taught that from the time we were kids. But one that we don't always consider is this. Neither should we steal from God. You say, oh boy, here he goes on tithing. No, I'm not even talking about the tithing part of it. Take your Bible for a moment. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 
And uh, let's look in verse number 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, let's go back to verse number 18. What, or 19, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are what? Bought with a price. Therefore, because of the fact that we're bought with a price, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are... Guys, okay, now, now follow me on this. God has bought us with a price. Our purpose at that point now becomes to glorify God in my body, that's the things that people see, and in my spirit, which is the things that many times people cannot see. I'm to bring glory to God in both areas, and the moment that I begin to do what I want to do, I begin stealing from God that which is His. I am His. My time is His. My body is His. Everything that I have in my heart belongs to Him. You know one of the greatest sins of the Christian life are the sins of the mind? The reason of that is we oftentimes think that nobody sees it. We don't realize that God knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Thou shalt not steal, not only from one another, but have you ever considered the fact how often... We steal from God. There are times I get to bed at night and I, 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 I hang my head in shame realizing that I have done that day what I wanted to do and gave very little consideration to what God had for me to do that day. And I look at those days and I think, I think I've robbed God. I've taken that which belongs to Him and I've claimed it that day for myself. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. By the way, if we can ever grasp this concept, it'll change the way we live our lives. It'll cause us to look at every day saying, God, I want your will done today in my life. I want what you want done in my life. 1 Peter chapter number 1. Look down to verse number, um, let's go to verse number 16, and we'll read down through about verse 19. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Can I tell you this this morning? You and I have been redeemed. If you're here this morning, you say, Brother Greg, I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. I have trusted Christ as my Savior. You and I are redeemed not by corruptible things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is far greater and far more precious and far more valuable than any silver or gold. And he makes this statement in verse number 18. We've been redeemed, not, not with the corruptible things as silver and gold, but this is what we've been redeemed from. Our vain, what? Conversation. Our vain conversation. The Bible oftentimes refers to the fact that our conversations dealing with our lifestyle, 
the way that we live our life. You know we steal from God when our life is vain, without value, empty. In the Song of Solomon, he talks, or in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon speaks oftentimes of vanity, of vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Can I tell you this? You say, Brother Greg, I don't steal. Well, that may be true when we're speaking of stealing from one another. But what about stealing from God? What about our life? You know, the Bible teaches us that it's just a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I oftentimes ask my kids, how much time do we have? And I try to teach them that we don't have a whole lot of time. If God comes back by way of the rapture, which I hope He does every day, I, I, I'll be disappointed if He doesn't come today. I will. We don't have a lot of time. But even if He doesn't come and I go by way of natural death, can I tell you this? We still don't have a lot of time. The Bible says that we're to redeem the time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. You know, the, the Bible tells us that we will stand one day and give an account for every idle word. How about you? But that convicts my heart. How many things that I do in my life and in my in a daytime that I think that's just what Greg wanted to do. And I will stand and give an account one day. And by the way, so will you. I'm thankful we don't stand and give an account for our sins anymore. They're under the blood. But what we've done for Jesus, how well we have spent our time, that which He has entrusted to us, this life that's a vapor, I think some of us are going to stand up there and say, Lord, I've stolen that from you. You bought it. It belonged to you. And I took it and did as I wanted to with it. Well, we'll pick up there next week. I uh, hope these lessons are an encouragement to us and help us. And uh, I, hope, I hope we don't just listen and leave and forget, but that we'll take these things and put them into practice in our lives and apply them. And uh, I hope it will be helpful to you. Let's pray, and uh, we'll be ready for our next service here in about ten minutes. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, what a joy it is to have it, to hold it in our hands. To live in a country that allows us to come this morning and not fear of being arrested or persecuted, thrown in jail. Lord, we got to come freely this morning, many of us holding a Bible on our laps in our own language. Some of us having two or three of them at the home, at the home and at the house. And yet, Lord, so oftentimes we neglect it. We're so thankful for the opportunity we have on Sundays to be able to meet together, not just for the fellowship, although that's very sweet, and not just for the singing, although that strengthens and causes our hearts to rejoice. But, Father, the preaching of Your Word that is profitable to us, Doctrine for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that you've given us your word. And Lord, the, the, the thing that we have upon our hearts as we leave here is that we're going to ask you to help us 
to take that which we read and that which we learn and to engrave it on the heart that we would apply it to our lives and not let us soon forget it. Father, I pray that every moment that we'd spend in Your Word draws us closer to You, helps us to become more pleasing and glorifying to You in everything that we say and everything that we do. Father, we ask especially that You'll bless the next hour as we preach, that You will stir hearts, and Lord, draw us near to You. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Thank you. 